Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Before going on to introduce today's guest, I wanted just to say two small things. Firstly, today's episode is the last in the mini-series of round two interviews that I've been doing over the last two months. I've really enjoyed going back to speak to my former guests, and I've had some great feedback on these episodes, but I'd love to get your thoughts. Have you enjoyed them? Have you enjoyed listening to how my former guests, consulting firms, their careers, and, and their views on the industry have, have evolved over that time? Have you learned something from them? Would you like me to do more of them? And that's the main question. As I'm lining up guests for autumn, I'm really starting to think, who should I be getting on the show? And I want your input and your thoughts on that. I've got some great guests lined up already, but would you like me to get more guests back for round twos? Would you like me to get brand new guests from firms that you've not heard from on the show? Please let me know. Just drop me an email, nick at createengage.co.uk. And if you want more round twos, I will make sure that we get them in. If you'd just like me to stick with new guests, that'll be the direction we take. Secondly, this is going to be the last new episode before our summer break. Just as I did last year, we'll be taking a short break 
while people are on holiday and to give you a chance to listen back to your favorite guest or to catch up on those interviews you've missed. I regularly get messages from listeners and speak to listeners who who love the show and just say, I've, I've not had a chance to listen to everyone or I want to go back because I joined the series late and I know there's so many guests to listen to before. Now's your chance. Don't worry, though, I will be back in autumn. The podcast will be back in autumn and I have some fantastic guests lined up. I can't say who yet, but I know that you are going to love listening to them and get so much from their advice and insights. But before then, back to today's episode, our final round two interview before the summer break. In today's episode, I speak to former guest Simon Dennis and his fellow Gate One partner, David Holiday. Since Simon first appeared on the show back in 2018, Gate One have gone from strength. Since Simon first appeared on the show back in 2018, Gate One have gone from strength to strength, growing the team to over 100 consultants and expanding internationally. Last year, that success culminated in the firm being acquired by Havas, a meeting of minds and a partnership designed to accelerate Gate One's growth even further. In this conversation, we go into detail on Gate One's journey over the last 18 months and dig into the story of the acquisition process, including how the deal came about and the process, discussions, the decisions that went into that sale to Havas. How the Gate One team managed that integration process, doing so during COVID and remote working, and their advice to others, considering or in the process of doing the same. And Gate One's plans for the future their international expansion, and how the Havas partnership has helped accelerate their journey for them. And Gate One's plans for the future, their international expansion, and how the Havas partnership has helped accelerate this journey for them. This episode really does lift the lid on everything that goes into a consulting acquisition, something that we really don't hear that much about in our industry. We hear a lot of the success stories, we hear a lot of the the end result, but we don't hear a lot of the behind the scenes, what goes into that. This episode gives you everything you want to know about that and more. From the cultural to the financial, everything in between, Simon and David share their journey and I know that you are going to get so much from what they have to say. So with the intro done, everything said, sit back, relax, enjoy, my conversation with Simon Dennis and David Holiday. Simon David, welcome to the show. Hi Nick. Hi Nick. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you both and uh, I know a lot has changed in 3 years, not least the office. This is a, a much fancier setup we have here than when Sai you and I were recording in a we work with, you know, what was our sort of slightly dodgy podcast kit way back 3 years ago. Yeah, a bit of an upgrade, eh? <laughs> Well, and I know we're going to talk all about that. And, and David, thank you for joining us as well, because I think it's going to be really good to to get two parts of the story. Obviously, Simon told the story well last time. It'd be great to get your take and, and how much of that of what he said was true, how much you see is slightly different um, and what's been going on since, guys. To kick us off, maybe we start there. You know, I'm, I'm conscious it's been three years, obviously, so we, we've kept in touch and I know a little bit about the journey, but a lot has happened. So for the, our listeners, be great if if we could kick off with what has been going on for for Gate One over the last three years. Yeah, uh, just one or two things. <laughs> um, obviously, we talked about I guess the the initial years and the the genesis of the business and years one to five when we spoke before Nick. So since that point, which was what early yeah, early twenty eighteen, yeah. So probably about sixty people at that point. So we yeah, have potted summary. Obviously, we've expanded our client base. We've 
developed a lot of new capabilities and services. We've won our first MCA award, broke into the Sunday Times best companies list. Uh, so we're at 22 last year. Uh, we've entered into an acquisition with Havas. Welcome to the Havas Village, Nick. Um, it is it is a lovely. Well, I now live in a village. It looks a little different to mine, but it is a <laughs> it is a lovely village. I'll explain. I'll explain the lingo in a minute. <laughs> we've obviously managed through the small matter of a global pandemic, uh, in which we lost uh, a third of our client order book, which was interesting. We've grown our team so to about 130 now, um, and certainly in very strong growth mode just at the minute. And we've taken the business international. It's definitely a big, big milestone in the last few months. So other than that, it's been it's been a fairly calm, uneventful couple of years. Wow. Well, we've got two hours and we're going to try and cover as much of that as possible. It's partly why we had two of you here, because I don't think I think there's more than one person can cover there. And I mean, maybe we start with that. So you, you mentioned around, you know, we're in a village, which is news to me and sort of living in one that looks very different. But that point around sort of being part of Havas, I mean, for those who don't know, who may be from a consulting background, you know, Havasa, a large marketing organization, sort of global marketing group, it'd be great to maybe start with actually if one of you could give a bit of context to who who is the company who's become your parent and you've merged with, because I think that's going to set the scene for a lot of what we talk about today. Yeah, sure, Nick. Well, why, why don't I take that? I mean, um, it's an interesting space, the media and marketing world. You know, there's been a lot of disruption in the last few years driven by huge advances in technology and data and customer-driven personalization and change. And, you know, Havas is one of a number of large media and marketing organizations globally. And, you know, like a lot of agencies, they're sort of wrestling with how do they help their clients going forward and, you know, move beyond the brief. How do they help their clients organize? What to in-house? You know, what kind of tech stacks to use? How to drive insights from data? You know, how to land sort of... significant sort of customer-centric change. So it's quite an interesting space for us. And when Havas came out as one of the potential suitors for us, you know, really interesting rationale overall. And, you know, when we scratched the surface uh, of what it was really about, we found that actually a lot of global consultancies had started to move into this space, had started to acquire lots of creative agencies, you know, some successfully, some with very mixed results. But very few had sort of gone the other way and very few management consultancies, at least in the UK, had joined large marketing organizations. And for us, that was really exciting space to sort of think about and that whole concept of putting creativity and consulting together. The village model is an interesting one and actually was a core reason why we wanted to join Havas. It's really about putting the best of the best agencies in one physical roof uh, they operate independently, but they also collaborate on key clients, which is perfect for us when we start to talk about, you know, our red lines and the things that, you know, we really wanted out of a relationship with a partner. And from a mission point of view, their whole concept is around meaningful brands and, you know, making sure that their organizations, you know, have, have a resonance, a long-term resonance with their with their customers. And that really chimed with us with our, our own mission statement about meaningful change. So when you put all of that together, you know, it was a really exciting proposition and, um, you know, a great sort of parent to join. And I think just to add to that, uh, all of that's true, obviously. From our team's perspective, it also means wearing tighter jeans to work and socks strictly optional these days. <laughs> And growing a beard for Simon as well. <laughs> it is a very striking beard, so, and, I, and I was pleased to see that you dressed up for today's interview more socks. So. <laughs> One of the less glamorous changes in the last three years. <laughs> I do want to come on to that, that, I guess, cultural integration piece. But David, to your point around a lot of consulting firms are, are buying up marketing agencies, and obviously there is a, a move towards that sort of, I guess, combination offering. 
I ask this for others who who maybe don't know the marketing side quite as well, but having a foot in both camps, I feel I can say this in that you know, consulting is typically considered by consultants you know, strategic, complex. Marketing is considered coloring in. And I have this conversation on a regular basis with prospective clients who are consultants. And I would I just love to understand actually a bit more about how those propositions come together. Because for some listeners, they'll be thinking, you know, there's no, yes, my op model has colors, but that doesn't mean I'm going to go and get the crayons out and do a pretty brochure. How, how do you actually bring those offerings together? How's that sort of helped your client proposition and and Havas and the others in the village? I mean, you know, lots of different sort of dimensions to that, Nick. I mean, we're, what, about a year and a half into the relationship with Havas and mostly under pandemic, but already we're seeing lots of different ways that we're collaborating with them on joint propositions, on helping different clients. So whether that's uh, with data analytics and with the data science teams that are in Havas, whether that's customer experience and providing more of the customer experience design that we can provide with the creativity of the branding and agencies. You know, there's lots of different ways. We're, we're also spinning up new propositions around sustainability and finding that actually across the village, there's a lot of different agencies that are already operating in that space. And when you put all of that together, there's some really interesting propositions coming out. So, you know, I think we barely scratched sort of 5% of what we can do in that space, but it's already a great start. And, you know, now we're starting to filter back into Havas and, you know, seeing people face to face, you know, it's only going to go from strength to strength here in the UK. I think, I think um, marketeers and consultants are that they, they may look different and they certainly sound different and we call each other out on our, you know, proverbial bingo, but they're much closer cousins than we probably realized. I think at the end of the day, we're in the business of helping clients to develop excellent products and services based on intelligent customer insights and then executing that brilliantly or designing, planning and executing that brilliantly. So we're obviously at different different places in the value chain but that's why it's so complementary um and you know now that we've lived in the village for a year as they've said we're really getting a feel for you know where the collaboration is most effective and, and where we get best bang for buck both ways i obviously approach that question being a former consultant in a consulting podcast from the consulting angle but I'd, I'd love to ask the other way of you know when you first came to the the village and everyone is is there a village pub just as a or does the the metaphor not extend that far I mean, there's free drinks on a Thursday night, and that really helps, uh, you know, get people to know each other. <laughs> yeah, so it helps the integration. Well, let's let's maybe <laughs> you lubricates <soon>. the collaboration. <laughs> well, so you're, you're at the you know the village pub on a Thursday night, and I I I'd love to know actually what did you have to do to almost sort of were there any myths you had to dispel for your marketing colleagues about what consultants are? You know, did they have any biases or questions or concerns that you had to sort of yeah help them understand how you could support them, not just how they could support you? I, I mean, overall, yes, we, we've spent a lot of time sort of working with the different agencies. They're all, they're all different and they all come from a different mindset. Some of them intrinsically got what we did because they're, they're in a closer space with similar buyers. Others are in a very different world of PR communications. And partly it was just about spending a lot of time with them and their teams and understanding actually there's quite a lot that binds us together in terms of culture and values. And, you know, once you start to talk each other's language and you start to get under the skin of actually well what do you really do no no tell me what you really do you know uh, it, you can really start to you know do some joint work together and once you've done one or two projects you know the rest snowballs from there so we found that already with 
you know, several of the agencies that are in the village and, you know, the others we're, we're sort of working through um, post-pandemic now. But there hasn't been a one-size-fits-all, actually. It's been quite interesting because there's such a, a huge variety of different agencies within Havas that are all brilliant in their specialist fields. Part of the fun of moving into the village is just to get to know what they do. And there's some really cool people, far cooler than many of us, in fact. <laughs> I, I think the common factor is that every agency and i mean just getting used to calling ourselves an agency was part part of the, uh, the one of the strange things about getting used to this model but every agency is is wired to collaborate and there's there's no there's no resistance there's no closed doors you know it's very much kind of open book on relationships and where can we where can we all serve our clients better by working together and i think that's a very rare model even where other organizations are trying to compete in the same space I'd be really interested how that model works, actually. You know, and I know you've, you, you mentioned you're only a year or so in, so if, if it's still coming clear, stop me. But you know, I, I think back side to one of our, you know, our first podcast where we talked about the sort of difference between a small consultancy and a big consultancy model. And, and as we all know, you know, sometimes one of the tensions in bigger firms is you get sort of that partnership structure where you're incentivized to compete. And I'd love to understand actually how, how that model works because you're all still separate businesses, separate P&Ls. How does that, is it just ingrained? Is there sort of some formal structures that encourage that collaboration? What makes that work and what stops it just being on the surface collaborative, but actually at the heart, you know, more competitive? My main thoughts on that, Nick, is unlike some of the other marketing holding companies, a lot of the acquisitions that Havas have done, they've been very thoughtful to make sure there hasn't been that overlap in competing services. So you don't create that internal environment, which is a bit dog eat dog, you know. So what it's meant for us is, you know, we're a, a management consultancy within Havas that is very complementary to everything else that the agencies are doing. There is no cannibalization, you know, that drives those inherent challenges. In, you know, and we've seen that in other holding companies. So it starts with that. And I think, you know, it ends with just a great group of people who are just genuinely curious about what each other's doing and how they can work together. And if you spend more and more time, you know, you inevitably find the opportunities to do so. I think what, what else we've also been struck by is the, the, the notion of group here in Havas is, is a very thin layer. And the, the thought and the effort that goes into collaboration is all about the environmental factors. You know, you've seen yourself, the kind of office layout, Nick, and it's it's all about providing the the great ambience and then let people naturally collaborate because they're the kind of businesses that we bring into the group. We don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about over convoluted incentivization structures, how to, you know, do gain shares and all of these all of these things which can actually have counterintuitive effects. Put the effort into the environmental conditions and then watch great people do great work and it it really works no it it, it sounds it and i, I want to touch on another piece actually that you mentioned the sort of that journey was the people and obviously for yourselves you know as, as the director of the company you're having some of these sort of conversations with the others in the village this may be a short question because because it may be the same for your team but actually how have your team found that adaption you know particularly if you're not involved day to day in that collaboration it must feel a little you know, alien if you're used to wearing a suit and suddenly you know you don't have to wear your socks maybe but maybe that's what they wanted all along you know i don't know <laughs> i think they're all happy to you know turn up wearing what they want to be fair you know we were in a, a previous we work and it was always quite a relaxed sort of 
creative style consultancy that we were trying to build rather than something which was a bit more at the more formal end. So it felt like a natural sort of fit overall. And there's been a lot of opportunities for our team to sort of get involved with, you know, the different agencies, you know, in lots of different ways. You know, we're learning huge amounts on how to tell a story, you know, properly how to avoid packing so many words on a single slide, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, the criminal offence from a consulting uh, firm. You know, we're learning a lot around uh, how they deal with diversity and inclusion and, and lots of other things. And, you know, there's loads of avenues for our, our team to be working with the agencies and the rest of the village at all sorts of different levels. So, but again, you know, we've already just started, you know, because of the pandemic and because of the last 12 months, we're hoping now we're all under one physical roof. There's going to be even more sort of opportunities for that going forward. I think that's the thing. And we might, we might come on to talk about how the team have felt about the difference, you know, a little bit later, but fundamentally we feel, you know, David and I, as, as, as founders of the business, we've given up so little to get to this point, you know, we're still an autonomous brand. We can work with whichever clients we we want. We don't have the kind of audit constrictions that the other consultancies have. We can still, you know, bring in the people that we want. We have control over our strategy and pretty much everything. And yet we've gained so much, you know, the, the infrastructure, the office, the, the back office, the new business capability, swanky podcast studio, and in particular, access, as David said, to this universe of fantastic capabilities that are complementary to ours and, and, and their client base. So enormous upside and without having to sacrifice any of our core kind of value proposition to our clients or our people, we can now offer so much more to, to both of those, you know, really key communities. You, you teed me up for it there, Simon. So why don't we come on to it now? Because that point around people and, you know, the cultural side is something that stood out for me when we spoke last time. And I was sort of listening back through our interview and remind me, I need to give you a Daniel, sort of your, your Daniel Pink recommendations have been great. So it's, uh, <laughs> and your Seth Godin. So, um, but you talked about the fact that you, know, you were clear. I think the, the quote was you were clear you were building a business that everyone owns, everyone has a stake and everyone can shape. And now obviously not all of that is literal. Some of that is, is metaphorical and cultural. But I'd be really interested actually how you've maintained that feel as you've joined a group, because obviously you are, you know, to, to use a terrible metaphor, you're a village, you can put houses up where you want, but I'm sure there's now a planning committee that decides whether it has two windows or one. So how have you struck that balance to become part of the, for your team, become part of the village while still feeling gate one and letting them feel and have an impact in the growth and direction of the business? Yeah, and it's a really interesting one. I, I get that it, it probably sounds strange to to say we can still stand behind a statement like that that you know everyone has a stake in the business when we're no longer an independent entity but i think you know to, to what i was just saying have us interfere so little you know it's it, it's all upside they can very supportive parent they're there when we need more there when we need to you know change our strategy or or, or seek turbocharged investment you know to to make big bold bets it's it's incredible to have a parent there, and if if well reasoned, a, a very come from a, a point of view of yes, and at, at the same time we've been able to do all of the things that we were going to do anyway, and and much more. So, the ethos of the business is, I think, I, I mean, you need to talk to our team, Nick, to kind of test <laughs> test whether anything that Dave or I say holds water. But but um, you know, the ethos of finding talented people and and liberating that talent, giving them an environment to flourish, you know, an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial environment to, to really make your mark, the ability to, to build and create something, you know, with us that, that still, you know, 
so much of a, a blank piece of paper that that people can can shape. You know, I'd, I very much like to think that is still absolutely the case, but now with an even more open-ended set of possibilities in terms of where our team can take their careers and international and new skills and you know n- new collaborations and client projects on a much bigger scale, all of those things is is all upside for them. And you know, I can't honestly think of anything that our team would consider that they've had to to give up for all of those benefits. It's funny. So I, I've actually recently been working with um, Rue and Amber from your team, um, and they are complimentary. So <laughs> it, uh, for anyone uh, for anyone <laughs> listening, it, it all sounds true from what I hear. And actually, you made a point there around you know, letting people sort of take that blank piece of paper, build, for instance, new capabilities, new sectors. It's something you mentioned sort of at the start. And actually taking a bit of a, a tangent, but I think it'll illustrate some of that point. You know, you as a business, you've grown a lot in people terms, but you've also grown a lot of capabilities. You're growing more capabilities, you know, David, you mentioned there with the sort of Havas piece. And I'd love to just, I guess, start with how has that growth happened? What, Where have you come from and gone to? And then maybe I'll hold it till after that. But I'd love to know, you know, looking back, which was the easiest, which was the most challenging and, and why for both of those? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a, a good question, Nick. I mean, part of my role since we set up the company was to to drive the the propositions, and um, a lot of it comes down to the team and you know who you who you back, who you bring into the business, and you know, Sai so mentioned sort of giving them that blank canvas to go out there and shape something from scratch. You know, we started out with a relatively tight sort of offering. You know, for those that that aren't aware, you know, it's operating models, change management, transformation strategy, and leadership, and sort of digital transformation. That was the the core of it, and it seemed to resonate well in the market. And as you as you grow, you tend to sort of branch out, and you can add more depth to those things. You know, along comes you know deeper customer experience. We had some great talent through the door. Data analytics was another one that came out. Product management, agile. You know, uh, the list goes on you know now we're sort of looking at uh, sustainability and you know trying to find the gate one approach into all of those offerings i would say probably some of the hardest have been you know trying to find the right people who can run genuine company-wide operating model transformations you know that that's not something you you learn overnight it takes years and years of experience but also the right mindset and you know like a lot of organizations finding the right people who really understand data but are able to operate with a consulting mindset and have the EQ to go with it. You know, those are rare animals indeed. And, you know, we've, we have a core nucleus now, but it's taken quite a long time to build that particular capability, you know, and all of those things are amplified actually with Havas. We found that all of our capabilities have been relevant with new combinations. And, and actually what it's done is probably pulled a lot more on things like customer experience and data, just because that's, you know, essentially where uh, Havas's clients are really interested. And, you know, there's a lot of great work to be done there. That point you made there, David, around finding the right people, I mean, that at its heart, I guess, of a services business, that, that becomes the number one challenge. And finding data skills and IQ and EQ is, is not always the easiest. And I, I'm intrigued on that you know, take that practice, take one of the other sort of capability areas. How have you gone about building those? And the reason I ask is I see a lot of consulting firms who who will enter a new market, but either sort of withdraw quickly or it it sort of stagnates. It never reaches the sort of the same level as their core capabilities. How have you approached that to, I guess, give that that person, that practice, that capability, the support to, to build that foundation? But also, I guess, for yourselves, make sure if you did hire the wrong person, 
they're not damaging the brand and the business by going off and you know doing something completely different or alien to the values, the culture. Yeah, I, I think you've got to take um, a few calculated risks. You don't you don't progress unless you're constantly experimenting. You know, and it's about giving people the backing. You know, each one of those is effectively a mini business within a business, and they get supported to put together a business plan, a go to market. You know, they get introductions with existing clients. You know, they get help with marketing, with recruitment, other things. So, for a lot of people who have sort of come up through gate one and are now leading a number of our capabilities and propositions, you know, they've, they've all gone on their own mini startup within a startup journey. And, um, you know, some of them take longer than others to sort of, you know, hit product market fit and then fly. But more often than not, you know, if you stick with it and you get the right talent behind it, great things sort of happen. And to be completely honest, it, it hasn't worked out every time. And that's not to say we've made mistakes, you know, with all best intentions and best endeavours, it just sometimes doesn't work and we've had to part ways with some you know some senior individuals who you know we really w- would have backed to succeed but it, but it didn't quite happen for for a combination of different reasons so as dave said you know you've got to keep pushing the boundaries and and therefore accept that sometimes it won't work and not be deterred to keep taking the risk and is there it might have just been very individual situations but looking at those where they haven't worked is is there almost either criteria that when you look across the board, they didn't meet. Were there certain things that, you know, having seen one of these practice areas not work out, you put in place to make sure the others were successful? I'm really trying to understand, you know, what are some of those key learnings to your point, Simon, that then you were able to fix so that the next practice or the next capability really did fly? I mean, the thing that sort of jumps to mind for me is, you know, do, do they have the hunger to to be almost an entrepreneur and start from from scratch? I mean, you know, they've got a, a great platform, but, you know, we place a lot of emphasis on people wanting to go out and generate business development and their own opportunities. And, you know, people, you know, either stand up and, and deliver and, you know, go outside their comfort zone and find that they can be brilliant business developers if they're going to lead new propositions or or it's not for them. And, you know, I think that's probably the single greatest sort of factor is whether they're going to make it happen in the marketplace or not. Of course, there's some other sort of things in the background about how you tweak and support them along the way. But if you're an entrepreneur, ultimately in a business trying to push the boundaries, going out and finding and building clients is number one. Yeah, I think that's true. And we probably covered this last time, Nick, but this this ethos of democratizing business development across our whole team at every level is is so core to our DNA, you know, and which is why we, we think we've we've created a really powerful engine around that very, very sustainable one that takes away kind of dependence on a small group of seniors to to kind of find the work and take the business forward as you, as you see in many other consultancies. By the same token, therefore, when when we we give these practice leads a, a platform, we do ask a lot of them and you know being it's a multifaceted role, they've got a build that business, you know, and deliver the great work. And for some individuals, that's been the making of them and it's really thrived. And and for others, as Dave said, that's probably the element that's been the most where it hasn't worked. That's probably been the, the leg of the stool that's, that's, you know, fallen a bit short. I wasn't going to, to go to the sort of COVID point more just because I want these podcasts to endure. And, you know, I don't know about yourselves, chaps, but I hope in a year we're, we're no longer talking about COVID and we, we no longer have to wear masks, but wishful thinking. But actually to your sort of that point there around democratizing the sort of business development, I'd I'd love to actually just touch on something you, you said right back at the start, Simon, around the fact you lost a third of your order book. And just to bring this to life, almost 
what did you do next and how did that democratizing of business development you know support you bouncing back from that because that's a huge amount of business to lose i imagine it all came very quickly when covid struck how did your approach you know help you to turn that round and get back to where you are now yeah i mean obviously with a lot of blood sweat and tears but but you've you've kind of answered your own question there nick like because of what we we'd built that into the fabric of the team and and because i think we have this very transparent you know open book sharing of you know wherever wherever company performance is at any given moment that you know the team the team are aware so likewise when you know when the chips were down in that sort of i guess spring period 2020 was was when things were most challenging because it happened so suddenly you know the, the team can grasp the scale of the challenge or i mean it was pretty surreal what was happening but even given the magnitude of what was happening that you know i'd like to think the team were were quicker to grasp you know the the scale of the challenge and uh, of course it was a lot of hard work and of course a lot of the team were really going out of their comfort zone of course it was the the first time many of our team had really faced into such challenging economic circumstances you know you're talking existential you know moments when you know when when you have such a, a severe impact on your on your business and it didn't happen overnight but i think i think two things the the first thing was the the results of that model and everybody playing their part eventually paid back you know sometimes sometimes we had some quick quick results sometimes it took it took a long time we we acquired new clients in a virtual world from scratch that we you know we wouldn't have necessarily expected you know some phenomenal stories were emerging of people all levels in our team you know shaking out the black books you know opening up opportunities and leads and you know through you know gargantuan team effort you know we, we did build it back you know piece by piece win by win roll by roll you know project by project and you know you, you start to you know repair it incrementally i think the other the other dimension that was massively beneficial to us and you know, back to the Havas model, it really accelerated our integration into the village model, partly by necessity, but but also worked both ways. I mean, every agency in the village was 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 feeling the pinch. You know, we weren't we weren't alone by any means. So it really accelerated what would have happened anyway in terms of collaborating. And, you know, I guess it was lower hanging fruit in terms of looking for opportunities for to cross refer work or to bring other agencies into our clients and vice versa so it was a hugely positive experience firstly it, it helped us to to move into new clients quicker through our partners but also it, it helped the learning process in in terms of understanding the complementarity with with what we do and our and our agencies and i think it also the role we played across the village as the, the sort of natural integrators that we are as consultants you know that also took an evolutionary leap um, at the same time. So, in a combination of of different things, and serendipity always plays its part, as as you know, in 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 the business development game. And then we've been surprised that the seeds that were planted in that period have really served us now. You know, we, you know, we're 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 growing in this period when we're still in lockdown, much much faster than we than we would have dared to to expect. Just on what you said there, something about the the honesty and transparency and. Again, this might have been, it was much easier because everyone was in this situation. But how did you as, you know, as the leaders of the business manage that? Because on one hand, telling the team, look, we're in the, you know, we're in the trenches, we're in this together, we need to go and find business, 
can be quite sort of it, it can get people sort of rallied behind you and really excited on the other side if you don't message it right it can get people you know scared feeling fearing for their jobs and almost you know applying for everywhere else how did you approach that to to get that balance right and, and get everyone you know confident that we can get through this and pushing in the right direction not you know concerned and, and all the problems that can come with that i mean i think we need the benefit of probably a lot more hindsight to you know, re- properly assess, you know, what worked well and, and, and otherwise. But we did make a deliberate decision to be very open with the team very early on. Um, and it did do all of those things. You know, it it caused, it caused anxiety. It, you know, it caused fear, uncertainty. A lot of the team, you know, it would have been easy to have downplayed the, the gravity of the situation as I'm sure other companies were taking, you know, that, that angle on it. So it did feel really uncomfortable. The reason we did that early was, and, and we were very open with the team about this, we, we are choosing to, to take bigger decisions in terms of some cost control measures very early so that it afforded us some optionality because the situation was so uncertain. And, and we took a lot of time to explain the rationale for that with the, with the team. And we were clear that if the consequences of the situation aren't as grave as they could be, then, you know, of course, you know, everybody will, will benefit from, from that later, but rather we all share the pain early so that we all have maximum optionality and we don't need to, to make the very, very difficult decisions of, for example, you know, letting people go or making salary cuts. We talked about the possibilities of having to do that or under what circumstances, but, you know, I'm really pleased to say we, we didn't have to invoke those things. And, you know, as I've said, it's all built back in a really positive way since. So I know that was uncomfortable for the team and I guess we knew that would happen. I hope they understand, you know, why we did that and, you know, they see that, you know, that strategy ultimately, you know, paid back for everybody. I think I'd also add that, you know, we created a working party that people were, you know, self-appointed to for them to see the data and for them to help us make the right decisions about, you know, a a series of increasingly unpalatable choices if it got to that point, for them to feel an active role in that and for others across the business to see that there was people at all grades involved in that in a very open, transparent way was was quite powerful as well. That just helped with the overall communication of things. And, you know, I guess overall, it's interesting in those big points of adversity, that's when you really understand what kind of business you've got and what kind of culture, you know, they really show the true colours. And, you know, the only other time I can think like it was Brexit referendum and, you know, the the slide that happened there. And, you know, gate one is at its best when, you know, we're backs against the wall and you come out as a stronger business as a result of that. Yeah, that's a really good point, David. I was, Nick and I talked about that in the previous episode, you know, when the team go through that period of adversity together, you know, they dig deep together and they come out the other side as a stronger business, like the sense of, of power that gives to the team is incredible. And, you know, God knows we're going to face more challenges and uncertainty in the next few years, but what can we not overcome together based on the you know the collective experience that we've that we've now had i think simon that that actually brings us quite nicely to the next few years and and what that looks like for yourselves i mean i've got some questions on some of the elements but i'd i'd love to ask you two first what actually what are the plans for the next few years you know what are the what are the key things that you see sort of the business doing moving forward and then i'll i'll sort of see if any of my questions make sense off the back of that i mean you know it's been fascinating to already be part of 
the Havas village in the last year and a half, it's opened up a completely new dimension for us, which we could never have hoped to do, you know, on our own. And I think looking forward, genuinely, we feel like we barely scratched 5%. It's, it's, a, it's a really limitless sort of future for us at this stage. And we have an aspiration to be a global challenger consultancy, Nick. And, you know, with Havas and the international ability and footprint that they have for us to expand and continue from where we are today, you know, that's just a really great dimension as well. So, you know, it will, before I go on to that, I guess we've, we'll also find quite quickly, we'll break the magical 150 barrier as a firm, which is giving us quite a lot of thought about how we change our operating model to keep hold of the culture that we've got and nurture it through the next stage of growth, but still keep that sort of family feel about the firm. So we're really thoughtful about, you know, that particular growth journey that we're about to go through. Why is, you call it the magical barrier. So you've obviously done some thinking about this internally. I'm running a business of, of nine people. So, you know, 10 is a magical barrier. What is it about 150 that's... I'll defer to Sai because he's done the more detailed research on 153, I think it is, isn't it, Sai? Yeah, I mean, obviously different experts think the number is, you know, in different places, but broadly between the sort of 80 and 80 and 200 barrier, you know, you, you need to, you're compelled to organize in different ways, think differently about about how your business is structured, how, how you delegate, you know, where, where the, you know, where, where decision making lies and, and, and those kind of things. So in our model, we've seen this kind of this hurdle of 150 approaching actually approach as much quicker than we were expecting. So it doesn't really matter what the number is, but we've we've used that as the rallying cry because that's approaching really quickly. We know that the the structures that have served us so well in this last evolution of the business will will surely cause us challenges in the future unless we get ahead of that and and start to think think differently. So that's one of the intellectual debates that we're we're enjoying going through at the moment. You know, which which in our model is simultaneous with international expansion. So it's inevitable you're going to be challenged around what aspects of your model are consistent in different markets, where's their local tailoring and, and you know, different flavors added um, in, in different parts of the world. So yeah, fascinating choices that we're, we're, we need to make very quickly that will hopefully serve as well to, to evolve to 250-300, which is the, sort of the next evolutionary milestone we're, we're looking towards. I think it's a curse of having a whole load of operating model consultants, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, snooping around and looking at the business and deciding how to design it going forward. But yeah, it's certainly the next big uh, challenge for us. And alongside that, and you know, where we go internationally as well. So, um, you know, we've got, I guess, really strong growth in the UK now coming out the other side of, of COVID. But what's been interesting is sort of the move into into other jurisdictions. Some of it has been a real pull from other parts of Havas who've seen you know, what we've been doing in the UK. And so we've set up Gate One Paris, that's now maturing nicely. And that's Havas's HQ. And, you know, those guys over there got a massive black book of clients. It's a really strong market for Havas, as you can imagine, Nick. And, you know, the pool for our consulting services alongside their very mature offering over there is going great guns. And, you know, I guess for us going forward, we've just launched in Dublin and, you know, soon to be in New York as well. And it's just made a hell of a lot easier because Havas operate in, you know, close to 100 countries. They've got the infrastructure, they've got the local villages, they've got the tax, they've got the legal, they've got all of the things that just hold you back from really expanding quite quickly into those different markets. So, uh, you know, international for us is is a really big sort of aspect of the future alongside playing much more with the different propositions and different creative agencies here in the UK as well. 
And, it, and it's quite weird to find ourselves say or hearing Dave say that, or oh, it's a massive aspect for us now, because I'm sure if, if we'd have talked about it three years ago, Nick, that the conversation we would have had was actually the, the founders of Gate One don't have a you know, a, a, a burning passion to, to internationalize, you know, as, as many consultancies do very successfully, you know, that was never a, an explicit goal for us. We, we consciously decided not to do that at various points in the, in, you know, in, in the past, but now we're in a situation where through Havas, we're, we're being pulled internationally, building on the success of UK, which is seen to be, you know, a big success story. And they, they really buy into our ethos of organic growth, building, you know, gate one as the, the, I guess, the piece in the, in the Havas jigsaw, the consultancy piece globally. So what an opportunity that, that we're now, you know, we're now actively pursuing. So massively, massively exciting for us, but certainly even at the point of moving into the, you know, the deal with Havas, it wasn't even an explicit expectation. So just a sign of how, how quickly things evolve and, um, yeah, it will be a massively exciting part of the next few years. It does sound great. And yes, I think so. And the, the only movie you were doing three years ago was Offices. I think you'd just about grown <laughs> yeah, out of the, yeah. the WeWork. Out of the um, <laughs> yeah, going to North London was was going to be quite a step. I'm interested, though, on that point around, you know, David, you mentioned around the, the pool, because there are quite a few consulting firms who make that leap successfully, but there are an equal, if not, I'd say, more consulting firms who get quite big in their sort of core market and try and create outposts and and struggle. You know, they they don't get that same traction. And that that pull obviously is helping you. You mentioned sort of Paris is up and running, maturing. Is it very much just that you can plug into that network? You know, you've got everything on site. You've got the black books you said. Is that the thing that's made it the sort of secret source that maybe some other firms haven't quite had? They've started from scratch and that's made it infinitely harder. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's still difficult to set up the right local gate one operations and we you know there's lots of live debates about how much is it consistent with the mothership you know how much is it independent you know and where where do those red lines sort of get drawn but i i think for us the the hardest part of our international is is you know making sure we've got the right talent to go out there and lead it or find the local market talent to to head it up and make sure that it is consistent with the gate one promise and you know how we deliver with clients and the values the rest of it in terms of the infrastructure is really really straightforward because they already have it set up they're very used to agencies growing from one jurisdiction to another it's incredibly well-oiled machine from that point of view and you know before we've moved into any of these jurisdictions the the other big barrier if you've got the talent bit sorted well then have you got the demand and we're, we're sort of seeing that we're actually servicing some of those countries from the uk first and then seeing that there is this pipeline that would give us confidence that if we land local teams we know we can really sort of fly from there so we know where the big markets are for havas and um you know we're just focusing on the ones that are i guess closest to us at the moment and you know they, they've just been great to allow us to to do that really. So um, long may that continue. And it's a it's a huge accelerator to have the infrastructure there, and and then more importantly, every village has its own client network there. So you know to the democratized business development point, we absolutely need to be winning work independently. But to to have a client base there, you're on the supplier frameworks. You've got a network of like minded people in, in each respective village and the legal entities you know there in place is is massive it's not easy to do the talent piece as dave said so that is definitely the key challenge for us but 
to have have those two other components, you know, a, a huge a huge leg up gives us a massive advantage. And I'm going to ask this question. I, I think you answered it, Dave, but I want to ask it in case there is anything else of actually the selection point, because you mentioned Havas is in 100 countries. Uh, you could send one person to each and you know, put lots of offices on the website. But I, I appreciate you're taking more of a sort of thought through approach. You talk there around you're going to the ones nearest to you. How have you selected you know, where you've gone in the order? Is it simply geographical? Where's the closest flight from Heathrow? Is it where you've seen the most demand from? Is it the talent? Is it a combination? If it is just those three, we can move on. But I'd love to know sort of if the, how you've structured that. Yeah, it, you know, it's a good question. It's, it, there's there's an obvious set of international markets as a UK consulting firm that you might want to move into over time. Typically English speaking, you know, typically sort of Western countries, you know, so the US is, a, is an obvious choice. Actually, Ireland was obvious for us because we had the talent that we wanted to set up and, and lead that particular area. So sometimes it is very talent driven. Sometimes it's the market opportunity. Sometimes it's just the pull. You know, I don't think we envisaged that our first international foray was going to be in Paris, but given our parent is over there and there was this real drive from there, you know, that wasn't without risk from our perspective to to move to a completely different country, culture, language, all the rest of it. But, you know, there's been a real strong push and it's worked out incredibly well, more surpassed our expectations at this early stage, actually. So, you know, when you look at other countries around the map, Australia, you know, Singapore, others like that, you know, we, we're quite thoughtful, but each one, you know, you need to you need to still treat on a case by case basis. But there there could be a steady pipeline, you know, down the road of, of international I think that is probably a good chance for us to to turn to something that we've talked a lot about today, but we've we've deliberately left for this section, and that is actually the acquisition itself. And yeah, I think of all of the guests I've spoken to for the the show, I've spoken to a number of people who have have you know sold their consulting firms or or sort of joined a group, but a lot of those people have done it a few years ago. You know, I think the thing that really strikes me with yourselves is you've literally just done this. So I. I'd love to, for my listeners, really dig into as much as you can and, and are willing to share. And I appreciate some of this may be confidential. So just stop or, or put, a, put a hand up at any point and we can move on. But maybe to start off that chapter, I'd, I'd love to just yeah, understand how did you decide it was time to go and sell? Was it Havas came knocking? Was it actually you decided to do you know more of a formal sort of exercise to see who's out there? What was it that made you decide, let's let's have a look at this? Yeah, that is a good place to start. And I think the question within the question there is, can you decide, you know, when to sell? You know, how much is it up to you? And, you know, answer, of, you know, of course, you can make a decision when to set your stall out. But, um, you know, as, as we now know from having gone through, a, you know, very, very complicated process, you, there's many things that you're you're not in control of. So throughout any of this, it's, it is, it's a risky game to set your expectations too firmly to to any particular you know, date or, you know, or type of acquisition or certainly type of company that you want to, you want to acquire you. But on our side, I think we, we've always held open the possibility. It's something that we may do. And we wanted to be really clear why, why that was. So, in, you know, in our case, there had to be, there had to be something that was additive to, to the mission and, and, you know, an additive to what we could do for our clients. So it certainly wasn't, you know, just for this, for the sake of selling the business. And then when you start to educate yourself on how these things work, and, you know, we were certainly amateurs when we went into the process, there are kind of windows, natural windows, you know, in terms of the maturity of your business that you that you need to be targeting 
for your business to, to, to be attractive to potential suitors. So regardless of when you might personally want to make something happen, you know, the timing has to be, has to be right the other way as well. I think in our case, I do remember a, a very specific moment. I think it was, I think it was when we came together at the start of 2019. I remember Tim, our managing partner, sort of sat us all down and, you know, we'd come through fairly traumatic experience that David alluded to, sort of navigating a post-referendum period. We'd had a, a fantastic sort of strategy reset and and sort of Tim Tim sat us down and was like, you know, I think I think we need to be, it's kind of now or never. And and we were all taken aback initially because it's probably sooner than we were we were expecting, having not been able to allow ourselves to think about it for so long. But his rationale was really clear. It was we're in one of those windows in terms of when we thought the business might be might be attractive to start some interesting conversations. The market conditions in terms of consultancies at the time was was very favorable. That's what all the data was telling us. And I think critically, we knew at the end of 2019 that that Brexit would be a reality. Uh, gosh, remember we used to talk about Brexit <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Feels weird. We knew post-2019 Brexit would be a reality. And and who knew what that would do to the market conditions? It, it may not have caused, you know, things to, to move in an adverse direction, but certainly the uncertainty would would increase significantly. So we did make a conscious decision at the start of 2019 that we would instigate a process and then be open-minded as to where that journey took us. We thought, you know, with a fair wind, if something was going to happen, probably within a six to nine month window. Uh, in our case, it, it, it took the 12 months and we, we, we ended up entering into the, into the deal at Christmas at the end of that year. So it was deliberate, but it took you know, many twists and turns along the way. Well, and and very fortunate timing given the uh, the year that's just just happened, and particularly for anyone who who's a, well where you were in the journey or a year or two before. You know, you mentioned it sounds like you did a lot of research on this. And you've now been through it yourselves. You mentioned there around like the certain windows for firms of your your size. You know, what was it? Was it the environmental conditions? Was it something around the the size of your business? I'm really interested. What was that window? I mean, it's a fairly boring answer. I mean, it, it, it's sad to say it's largely based on profitability. So in our case, there is kind of a, you know, a, one of those windows, the market kind of lazily perceives one of those windows is it when, when your profit is, is sort of two to two and a half mil in terms of EBIT, then you're in a certain scale that you know, you, you're a meaningful addition to, to you know, whatever the, the, the nature of the acquisition is but still with a huge amount of growth potential or you know leverage potential so that was part of our rationale yeah you you need to get on board a good set of advisors that will tell you some of that feedback and when you've hit the sweet spot for the market that you're looking at and we certainly had that advice i think even 12 months before that and actually it was really sound advice which was just no go away keep going build the business keep building some of the fundamentals in x y and z as well as some of the revenue and profit growth and we'll talk again in 12 18 months and that was probably the single biggest uh, advice we could have had and is that where sort of Tim's statement, I appreciate it might have just been provocative for the meeting, but that sort of now or never came from, was it that window closed at a certain point and the next one was too far away or you you, know, you didn't want to get to that next one or didn't think you'd get there within the time frame you wanted? What Was it advice that told you it was now or never? Was it a gut feeling? What, what I think was it that? Was, I, th- I think, you know, it was a you know, dramatic statement, as, as you said. It was, and it, we were open-minded as to whether this was ever something we were going to do. So it wasn't, you know, 
we didn't see it as a negative if something didn't happen in that time period, but it was more, let's take this on and see what, see what possibilities open up for us. And if the right thing is there, now is a good time to do it. And if the right thing is not there, no problem, but who knows when that window will open up again because, you know, significantly increased uncertainty if we, you know, we perceived if we hadn't hit that 2019, you know, as you say, you know, who knows? I mean, it's, there's every chance, you know, nothing would ever have happened if, if we hadn't done it then. So, uh, you know, fortune favors the brave, as, as they say. But, um, you know, as a, just to reiterate, it wasn't a, we, we certainly didn't go into 2019 going, come what may, we will enter into an, a, a deal with somebody this year, you know, before Brexit, you know, absolutely not. You know, we thought worst case scenario, whilst this, we knew we were taking a huge additional undertaking, worst case scenario, we we would significantly educate ourselves, you know, potentially for, for future benefit. So I've got two questions and I'm, I'm going to ask a little bit of both because I feel they're chicken and eggs. So I'll let you guys tell me which one comes first is, you know, David, earlier you mentioned how you'd, you'd been very sort of selectful and mindful in, in joining Havas and you'd, presumably you presumably you talked about other marketing groups. So I'm going to infer you talked to a few. You've also talked about the fact that you had advisors and, you know, I'm keen to dig into that side as well. I guess, what I'm interested to find out is, did you decide the type of parent you wanted and then went out, got advisors to find that? Did, or did you start with advisors? Because I then want to go in the, the right order to, to explain how this process worked and would work for someone else. It's a, it's a really good question. I, I think we went advisors first and, you know, we were new to the the whole process about work, tying up the firm with a with a parent, and I think it would be naive to think that we knew the kind of parent that we actually wanted at that early stage. So, getting on board the right advisors was absolutely critical for us. And you know, Livingston, who who turned out to be our our providers, and you know, we can't sort of recommend them highly enough. But that really started off a process for us, Nate, which was looking at a whole number of industries that we might like to potentially be part of looking at individual organizations within those different industry verticals. And I'm talking about a huge range on here. We cast the net deliberately wide to be open-minded about what would come through and what were the possibilities. And, you know, Livingston worked with us along with our lawyers and others to, to really cast the net quite wide because we wanted to educate ourselves on a whole load of different possibilities and then slowly over a period narrow it down into you know, not just the type of industry that we wanted to join, but also the individual organization within there. Um, so from that perspective, the, the beauty parade started very, very broad indeed, and then, you know, whittled down over a, a period of, you know, many months, very skillfully done with Livingston, you know, by our side. I'll start there then with advisors. And actually, before, you know, you mentioned there, you had Livingston, you had lawyers, you had others. Again, I ask this almost naively, you know, how did you start that process? You know, if you think of that as a team, like how, how did you even know what players you need on that team? And then how did you select them? Because, you know, I, I, it's not, it's a very crude analogy, but if you're selling a house, there's 10 estate agents on the road, you can, can see them, you can speak to people about them. When you're selling a consulting business, it's not like there's a for sale sign and you sort of go knock on doors. How did you even start with knowing who to have on that team and then actually going through the process of selecting them to make sure they were the right fit for you in that journey? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, something that, you know, Tim, our MD, took on and, and did a phenomenal job with, actually. And a lot of it involved talking to previous owners who'd gone through the process, recommendations that they had. But I think 
appointing the right sales side advisor for us, you know, it was a a vendor selection of uh, a partnership selection process in its own right that we ran a number of different you know providers we understood their offerings we got them to come in we got them to you know really be clear on who were the specific individuals from their team that would be working with us uh, we actually got them to go and meet the lawyers that we had appointed because they would need to be working closely together you know so there was a really rigorous process actually and you know I'd encourage anybody who's thinking about you know, this in, in their future consulting sale to, to really put the rigor behind finding the right partners for you. And there's a lot of things to trade off around, you know, what their fees are, what they can offer, what some of the value add is, what's their track record within your particular given industry, you know, what's their particular slant on the sale and, you know, what's their immediate black book, who can you go and talk to that they've worked with before? You know, there's a lot of due diligence that putting it in at the early stages, I think, really paid um you know, pay back later. Um, and the team that we assembled around us, there's no way we would have done it without them. And, you know, I think the first thing is to recognize you need the help and that you can't do it on your own. You know, all of them are, are, are massively wise investments to go to go after in, 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 you know, given you're facing such an uncertain process. And in truth, it was quite a fine call in our case. So, you know, Livingston were phenomenal, as Dave says, but we met many top-notch organizations you know and probably we did a beauty parade of what six different organizations dave and you know yeah. they, they were all impressive and you know in truth we probably could have gone with any any one of three we didn't we didn't feel there was you know clear blue water between any of them so th there are many good advisors out there from from our experience but you know we never we never regretted the choice we made you know uh, uh, you know the team the team we found through the process we ran and i guess part by 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 you know serendipity it w were were phenomenal. You said there there were there were three sort of close, and I'm not going to ask you to to name who they were, but I'd love to find out what was it that sort of tripped that you know decision. And the reason I asked that in part is if you're new to this process, how do you know what good looks like? So how did you get to three, and then what was it that the other two just fell at that last hurdle that meant Livingston? You know what was it they did and and sort of showed you that that really made them the the front runner. I mean, from my perspective, so I might have a, a different view on this. I, I think the clincher comes down to, you know, final chemistry. There's a lot that you place your trust in, you know, that they understand you enough to represent you in the marketplace and advise you in the right way and understand implicitly what you're trying to drive out of a deal beyond any, you know, straightforward things like commercials and other things like that. For me, that was the overriding deciding factor when you line up and you eyeball the team that's going to be working with you, you know, on probably one of the most important decisions you're going to make as a founder, that trust and that chemistry is is the clincher for me. Yeah, definitely. And that, that probably, yeah, it, it didn't boil down to one thing, but but that probably was the the most important single factor. You know, in our case, we made it conditional on appointing them that um, Jeremy Furness, who was the senior partner that, that led their pitch to us, had a very key role in the team and that every member of the Livingston team was was excellent but we were very assured by the fact that we knew Jeremy himself was going to stay really close to it and he was true to his word so that wasn't a commitment that all of them were prepared to make and I think there's actually a really key point in there you know to that I guess that being very sort of deliberate about that and I guess also having the confidence to demand that I mean that may sound strange given you've done it but there's quite a big thing to ask 
that question. You know, obviously, you're putting your faith in them, but actually to demand that person, that team, that, that feels like quite a big... So was that just always a no-brainer for yourselves? Did that just come out as you went through the process? Just because I think, talking to myself personally, sometimes you know, you'd be very British about it and might not want to ask that question. Yeah, you're right. Don't don't ask, don't get. I mean, and it, our clients ask us that, that question often, right? You know, if, you know, maybe not me, but Dave. <laughs> um, you know, if Dave's leading a pitch, you know, the client will often say, you know, you know, love the pitch, but you know, Dave needs to be to me a key part of this. So, you know, I'd always advocate that. What more? What's what's the point? You know, trying to transmit that, uh, you know, buying atmosphere by pitching if you're not prepared to to follow through and and be part of the the delivery team. So you know, definitely, definitely ask. And um, ultimately, they want the work. And, you know, they genuinely wanted to work with us or or, or they wouldn't have, have put a, you know, really competitive proposal together. So I, I don't even think they did it reluctantly. It was it was actually quite an easy, an easy give on their part. Yeah, I think your, your only job as a founder at that stage of the sales process is to assemble the best possible team of talented individuals. So don't be shy and hold back in, you know, making that happen. And it's nice to be a client for once, actually, and yeah. be a bit demanding. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be the other side of the beauty yeah. parade. Yeah. I want to then come on to the, you know, we said there was two parts to this. One was selecting the team. The other was playing the game for for one of a metaphor. I'd love to then go on to that because we talked, as I say, about this being quite a deliberate selection. You, you know, so obviously you talked at the start, actually, you were, you were pretty broad. You didn't know, you were looking at all options, but you obviously came quite quickly down to a sort of narrowing of what you wanted. I'd love to understand how that process worked and, and how you got to the point where you knew you were looking for a parent business like Havas. I think there's two parts to that, Nick. One, the, the, the whole process is fascinating. And if you haven't ever been part of it, which I hadn't going into it, it it's massively eye-opening. Every potential tie-up partner that you meet, you learn new things about your firm about the things that you do like about the things that you don't like so you know even all of the the potential suitors that were ultimately a no gets you closer to a yes and you know you start to become clearer about what you you value but uh, underlying all of that you know was really a strong sort of understanding across all of us about you know while we all had slightly different personal ambitions and you know family situations and all the rest of it the core of what we were looking for and the red lines that we had we were really key on those and, and really clear. I think Sai touched on it a little bit earlier. You know, that independence was was really important to us. Having built a firm that had a unique culture, had its brand, you know, being able to be in charge of our own destiny, you know, that was really important that we weren't going to join, you know, a potential suitor that would ultimately squash that or integrate us into the mothership and you know we'd end up losing a lot of our team accordingly and having that ability to you know be still clear on our mission still deliver meaningful change still work on the things that we wanted to and and move into different areas of growth that was key for us and we didn't want to lose that and actually you know uh, an organization that could help us amplify it could push us in new, exciting, you know, directions is brilliant. And I guess that was the third thing is, you know, this wasn't just finding a home for gate one. This is trying to find a, a space where you could put opportunities together. You know, that whole notion of two and two equals six, you know, was really important to us. We didn't just want a partner that was going to amplify a journey we were already on. We wanted a partner that was going to take us in, you know, completely new paths. And so it was really 
big shopping list when you sort of step back. But those were ultimately the red lines, not just for us as a set of founders, but if we were going to turn out in front of the firm, you know, and all of our people and say, hey, look, here's your new partner. We had to make damn sure that that was something that they would feel excited about as much as we would. Otherwise, what's the point, really? So there was a lot of sort of soul searching when you get close to those things. But when you scratch the surface and you see, you know, potential organizations that could offer elements of it, but not all of it. I don't think we were in a position where, you know, we were prepared to make those trade-offs. And I, and I think that's the ultimate point on this. And Sai mentioned it. We were prepared to go through a process, but we weren't prepared to do a deal at any cost. And, you know, you have to be ultimately ready to just walk away if, if you don't find the right suitor. And for all of the best laid plans, ultimately it comes down to luck that there is the suitor, the other side that is right for you and you're right for them and they're in a buying mood at the right time. And ultimately for us that, that worked out. But had it not been, you know, we could have quite easily walked away and that would have been the right decision too. Those red lines obviously sound like they helped you in selecting that sort of suitor and, and parent. But I'd, I'd love to understand, you know, actually in, in the sort of day-to-day, there's four of you. So I can understand with one of you, it's quite an easy decision to make. This suits me, it doesn't suit me. You mentioned you've know, all got different family situations, personal lives. Actually, was there ever a time that that was tested and, and particularly sort of keen to understand how you overcame that as a group? Because you can say you've got red lines and then suddenly someone offers you a big check and one of you wants to do something, one of you wants to do another thing, and, and this is just people at large. Were there ever any of those sort of difficult conversations and, and how did you as a group sort of come together to sort of overcome that? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing, I, the best deal is not necessarily the most commercially attractive, you know, and that's actually something that intrinsically people might not get when you get into thinking about all of the different other aspects to to a deal. And of course, we all came from, you know, different personal sort of perspectives on it. Actually, there was quite a lot of commonality, but you know, there took her quite a few sessions over beers to to just sort of have the full and frank conversations about where each person was coming from personally, what their own, you know, aspirations are. Because essentially what you're doing is looking each other in the eye and saying, you know, you're in for at least another three plus, four plus years, you know, and is everybody on board with that personally, professionally, family-wise, and, you know, getting things out on the table. And, you know, there were a few, you know, particular things within there about what people wanted to do and how long, but ultimately really strong alignment to those those red lines. And uh, I don't think you can go into a process as a set of founders and leaders without having those full and frank conversations to just know where not just the the company red lines are, but any personal ones are. Because, you know, ultimately life's too short. And if somebody goes in either vetoing it at the last minute or kicking and screaming, then, then you know, you, at the worst possible scenario, the whole stack of cards falls down. Yeah, I'll have to give Tim a huge amount of credit in terms of trying to get out ahead of that with all of us, you know, with with the five of us. And and understand where where everyone's personal preferences were and, and personal red lines were before we went into it. But ultimately, we were clear with each other that besides those, the, the three red lines that, that Dave talked through, you know, the genuine red lines, everybody would, would probably have to compromise somewhere along the line. And, and we were open about that too. And then beyond that, you know, Tim making the judgment call about because we obviously couldn't all be in every conversation, you know, when you're setting off so many different hairs running at once, bringing us in as all in at the right time or different, you know, different, um, you know, couplets or 
or, or subgroups of, of the five of us in for different conversations and trying to hang it all together with some some semblance of coherence through uh, you know what's what's inevitably quite an undulating road you know he he did really deftly you know and ultimately there wasn't honestly anything that I don't think any individual had to make a, a really big personal compromise on but but there were definitely some things that weren't perfect but then ne- there never will be certainly when you're trying to juggle juggle five different people that are you know a parent who also has you know understandably has you know their own agenda in terms of what they want out of it another side of this and i know from other founders i've spoken to in terms of the process it's just simply the the workload again you you hear about the sort of end of a deal and and everything that comes with that but actually the the due diligence that goes into it the documentation that you will have a much better of idea than what goes into it than i will but how did you sort of tee it up there so i around you know actually i guess delegating some of these meetings to individuals how did you as a founding team stop this becoming just a huge part of you know i guess as a distraction you know stopping you running the business and having you spend hours and days finding contracts and reports and on and on i mean i'll take that one i mean um size mentioned um the work that tim put into it actually we we knew from the beginning that it was going to be a massive endeavor for us and it was going to be all consuming you know actually Mark, uh, who's our finance director, supported you know really well by Kirsty, who who is in our finance team, our finance manager, and and Tim, shouldered a huge amount of the heavy lifting. And there's a there is an enormous amount of work, as you've alluded to, Nick, to you know get the information memorandum in place, to deal with lots of due diligence, and all of the questions that go with it. But they all did a really great job of making sure that we were in the meetings that mattered, you know, the key meetings with potential suitors, the key decision points, the key strategizing meetings with Livingston. At no point did anybody feel left out of the process from a from a founder point of view. And it's really important, actually, because, you know, you can spend so much of your time just focusing on the deal and then you lose your eye on the business and, you know, things start to slide. And I think one of the things that worked really well was just being really clear, okay, it's a massive project, but there's these people working on it and everybody else's job is to keep things going and keep driving forward and make sure we've got, you know, a stable, strong business with with the foundations and, you know, a tricky balancing act. But those guys were the real heroes through that that particular part of it. And yeah, and the other the other kind of challenge in all of that process is because it's necessarily in those early stages, it's highly sensitive it really grated with our general sort of ethos about sharing and transparency with the broader team. You know, and in those early days, you know, due to NDAs and other things like that, you 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 just can't share as much as you want, even with an extended leadership team. So as soon as we could, and probably much earlier than most other organizations typically do with any M&A, you know, we were out to our leadership team to sound get soundings for them. We were out to, you know, the broader team as and when we could announce, which is really important too. I do want to come on to that, but I just to hold on your point around what Mark, Kirsty, and Tim did, this may sound like a, a sort of obvious question now having been through it, but looking back and again for anyone who might want to go through this process, you know, next year, two years, 10 years, was there anything that you had set up in the business or done that made that due diligence process really easy? And conversely, was there anything that, you know, made it really laborious and time consuming? You know, I'm thinking, was there a way you had done your contracts that meant you could just give them over or conversely, was there something where you thought, oh, bloody hell, I've got to go back through, you know, my box in my loft and find that file. I mean, it's one thing that Tim, Mark, many people across the team in operations and elsewhere have 
set up and run an incredibly tight ship, you know, in terms of all of the contracts were in place, employment contracts were in place, you know, any third parties are sorted. We implemented a professional services automation right at the beginning of the firm, you know, within the first year, you know, that gave us a, a load of huge MI, you know, which, you know, information memorandums were, you know, meaty documents anyway. This thing was a monster because Mark and the team were able to add so much more depth. And what that does is it gives buyers confidence and it means that they're not going to find a whole load of skeletons in the due diligence process. And it was an incredibly clean process as a result of that. I mean, there's still a lot to go through and a lot of back and forth. But, you know, the, the way that the business has been set up and run from year dot just made that a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, I don't want to make out that it, it isn't intense and laborious. Like in, our, in our experience of, of one deal, it's, it is just an absolute mountain to work through. You've, never, you've, written, you've never answered all of the questions. But you're certainly asking for a world more pain if you if you're not running a tight ship in the first place. So, I know our lawyers said it was the cleanest business they'd ever they'd ever looked at. So the easiest from their perspective. But they probably say that to everyone, <laughs> don't they? Yeah, yeah they do. <laughs> Is yeah. that when you ask for a discount on your fees because it was so easy for them? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and Dave, you, you mentioned around sort of the you know the team angle, and obviously we talked earlier about how actually the integration part has gone really well, and you you know your team are sort of working well with the other agencies in the village that early phase when you're you were announcing the deal to the team you know it's a topic you don't hear a lot about people talk to the founders you hear the founder story you, you don't hear a lot about that team impact and, and the culture obviously you're building and and you know is very close-knit actually how did you approach that a bit almost like we talked about earlier with covid and if it's the same answer we can move on quickly but how did you approach that again so that everyone understood what was happening and and saw the benefits, not the concerns or challenges, you know, oh, culture's going to change, et cetera. How did you approach that as a team? I think the timing, the timing of when to expand that circle of trust is, is it's such a finely balanced judgment call. And you want it to be late enough in the process that it, you know, it's, it's relatively certain that something is going to, to come to fruition, but not so late that, you know, you, the audience for that, you know, in our case, in the first instance, our extended leadership team just feel it's some empty tokenistic gesture, you know, when it when it's actually a, you know, a fait accompli or, or, you know, already. So we definitely engineered some deliberate moments with that group. I remember one was when we'd sort of down to a, you know, a notional shortlist with which still had a couple of quite di divergent paths actually in it. But I think it was the stage where we had serious offers on the table and we we felt as a as an owner group that it was likely we would go with with one of them you know they're credible enough they passed you know our key tests so it was more likely than not you know that that something would come to to fruition and that was a really interesting conversation and we, you know we genuinely were, were quite heavily swayed by the feedback of that group at, at that moment in terms of certainly closing off some of those avenues as a, as a direct result of, of those conversations you know, then pretty much the next moment was, yes, this is this is going to happen. In, in terms of the wider team, I think you don't really have any other option but not to share the news and, until it's news. And obviously, we're concerned about hairs running, but confidentiality is a big thing. So, you know, as Dave said, it, it was slightly countercultural for us because you know we 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 are so open with the team and transparent about about how we run the business. But for that instance you know and, and until it's a done deal you know you can't say anything so 
so we knew we wouldn't be telling the team until you know there was there was wet ink on the on the page but that that in itself was quite you know a bit of a funny story because we so christmas 19 it come together almost perfectly or we thought perfectly that we were i think we were due to sign on the the thursday evening before we had a you know the full team coming to our christmas event the, the gateway as we call it on the on the friday so we had a venue booked to, to run our event but and i don't think even the team the team probably don't, don't know this but we, the plan was that literally halfway through the day we'd kind of tim would get on stage he'd he'd announce you know this momentous you know development and then we'd decant the team from whichever venue we're in, in central london over to the so they have us office we you know we're going to wheel out some of the you know our our oppos from from have us and, and talk about it show people you know the wow factor of of hkx and um you know we really felt that was the best way to communicate what this was all about by being in situ and and so we'd woven that into the day we had the buses you know literally parked in you know somewhere in central london waiting for the team but in the end you know that that last straight of getting the deal done there were so many sort of last minute complexities questions and it was minutiae of the minutiae but you know you know lawyers being lawyers it just it just ended up being so protracted so with some sort of furious ad libbing from from the organizing team who just ended up running the running the day in in the original venue we weren't in the end able to do that and um we ended up actually signing the papers later that evening in the margins of our christmas party so I seem to remember Dave was half cut at the time. He probably could have been signing anything. Um, so we ended up actually having to communicate to the team in a telecon on the following Monday, which was just, you know, a fairly major anticlimax from what, what we'd intended to do. But to go back to, to your question, I think if you're the essence of the rationale, you know, those those three, you know, critical factors, independence, mission integrity, two plus two equals six, you know that you know we, we're still with with the same authenticity to those to those objectives obviously the channel was a bit underwhelming but you know i hope it landed with the team and then we were able to to bring them in to to the village i think later in the week and we you know we stood up a bespoke event to, so they could really really see it and feel it in a, a bit more tangibly but you know there's nothing you can do that doesn't make that quite a seismic moment but um at the same time if you if you do it in a way that's consistent with 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 you know with your culture and your values then that's the way to make it the smoothest it, it can possibly be obviously if your culture isn't like that it's it's harder to you know to land the rationale in in the same authentic way i really like that and i think that point around actually having people feel it viscerally come to the office you know it, it is a cool office but having people feel and and get to know the the company they're joining because i think as, as we know as consultants so often it's perceived problems what are they going to be like on that side whereas if you're all together I guess you dispel that quite quickly. You probably had everyone going off to Christmas quite excited about the new the new office. It's it's a little bit better than a WeWork chaps. You know? no, no offense to the WeWork. But it's also recognizing as well that, you know, even though there's lots of exciting things about it, for a lot of people it's massively unsettling. And I think just even standing up and acknowledging that some people are just, you know, already there mentally, really happy about it. Others need to take a lot more time to digest and process it you know, follow-up conversations, you know, making sure people really understood the rationale, quelling any sort of rumour mill about what it would be, what it wouldn't be. It's still a big fundamental change for people, even if, you know, the office was better. So, you know, it, it, 
whilst there were quite a lot of people who were, you know, straight on, really up for it, others were naturally more reflective. And it's just allowing that to take its course as well. Well, I think Charles, we, we've covered a tremendous amount of, of ground today. And, you know, I, when we started and we're talking about all the things you've done in the last three years, I, I wasn't sure how much we'd get in, but I think we've, we've covered so much of it. And actually, probably one last question. And again, tell me how much or little you, you can or can't talk about this before we go on to sort of, you know, my, my wrap-ups that I ask all guests is really about, about yourselves and what's next for you. I think something that has always sort of interested me about your model, I know you're not unique, is that you, you set up as a, as a limited company, not a partnership. And again, having, you know, in my consulting days, I worked at a partnership, so I saw leadership transition, you know, new partners joined, sort of more senior partners retired, and, and that kept the firm going not knowing how that works in a model like yourselves or where you've now joined a group, actually, how are you approaching that leadership transition? You know, you're going to have to bring more people in to run the business as you grow, as you get past the magic 150. How are you approaching that next phase of both the new leaders coming in and also how is your role changing as as that happens? Yeah, it's certainly, it's, it's one of the most important dynamics that we're that we're managing through at the moment. And even since we've moved into have asked the leadership team has grown quite significantly, including the partnership team. So a number of the, the partner group have now some promotions from our team, some you know directors who've who have come through, and we we're actively trying to build you know, the the leaders of you know that that leadership team as as we grow and find you know GMs for for new markets. So you know incentives are massively aligned in terms of our desire to build that leadership team and and our team's desire to you know, hopefully to, you know, to, to, to progress upwards. So some of that will be easier. Some of it will be harder. I think the notion of, of our roles and moving from, you know, founders or owners to, you know, to leaders of the business or, you know, consulting partners has been, has been interesting. And the the whole notion of founders and owners is, is just, it's just not really important now, much, much less important if, if it ever was. So the way, the way we very much think about our roles now is, Sort of stewards of of this business, you know what we think is quite a special business, moving into a, a space that's, you know, really unique in the consulting market. You know, it's a real it's a real privilege. And however long, you know, we stay involved, our role is really to 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 keep building a model that is that is sustainable to to grow and evolve and, and become something you know much more exciting, way beyond you know our involvement. But personally, you know really invigorated by by the possibilities for myself and, and for, for colleagues and leadership team in in this new world that we've moved into you know e- even since you know since since the acquisition so it's it's very much not playing out for time it's it's very much you know what next yeah i think you know it's, it's personally put on a completely different tangent to my career having joined vas and working with all the agencies and where it goes next it's a it's a really exciting time but as i mentioned you know it all starts and ends with with building more leaders in the business and that just gives you options and you know whenever people decide to go their separate ways if you've got that core strong leadership team that's ever growing here and you know internationally you know then the business will will you know survive and thrive going forward whoever's driving it at the top I think one point that we've always been really explicit and clear about with the team is growth. That that is a you know a very explicit objective for us, not for profit, not for you know for for revenue, but but that is the way that we all as individuals keep growing. We create new opportunities for for growth. You know now, 
you know, very tangibly international opportunities. And, and we've talked about platforms for building out new services and capabilities. So when growth is there, it's easy to find incentives for everybody to to share in those rewards. You know, people get hung up on what the mechanism is. Is it equity? Is it profit share? Whatever it does. That matters far less than if the the organism is growing in a really healthy way, then the, the rewards are there for everybody. But it, it's an it's a notion that the that it takes the team a while to to kind of engage with and be comfortable with. You know, what, why can't we stay kind of as we were? Like, like I like knowing everybody in this kind of small small team. Uh, maybe I don't want to grow, but that's been something that we've been, you know, we've we've been very explicit about. It's that human nature, isn't it? There's a intrinsic fear of any change, and you know, if you're not a consultancy that's growing, then you're not giving growth opportunities to individuals. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but. A consultancy that isn't growing is one that's probably got more of an up or out policy as well. And, you know, when you start to unpick that with people that, you know, okay, yeah, no, that is a good thing that we're getting more people in and I've got more opportunities to learn from others. And, you know, it just creates a different mindset and one that isn't, you know, focused on this is my turf, this is somebody else's turf. You know, there's a bit more of a sort of endless possibility to that. And that is, you know, true at a firm level as much as it is at an individual level. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really key point, both. And I, I'm someone with a lot more knowledge than me once said, you know, either you're going forward or you're going backwards. Actually, the the sort of notion of standing still, you know, to that point, even the sort of up and out course, you, you've got to grow or you, you're shrinking and you can't have this sort of hallowed standing still, everything's perfect. And, and like you say, you know, growth means you've got more roles, more people. It also, this brings us nicely onto my last questions. And I love a good segue. And, and that growth mindset is something that I know, uh, Simon, you're a big believer in. And, and we talked a lot about last time with books. And so really, these are my last two questions. Simon, you've already answered them. And so I think the first one is about books. From our last interview, you turned me on to Seth Godin. Um, since then, I now actually give all of our clients, This Is Marketing, which I don't know if you've read, is sort of his latest but one book, which is fantastic. You got me onto The Icarus Deception. So if I've taken either of your two, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I'd love to ask both of you, you know, maybe we'll start with, with you, Dave, because you've not, not been on the show before. You know, what is the book that you find yourself giving or gifting to people most often and why? You know, this is the point where I'm meant to come up with something quite intellectual and profound. And um, I'm not going to actually, because the book for me that it was given to me by an advisor that we have, and um, it's called uh, Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vader. And it's an incredibly cheesy uh, American book, you know, but once you once you look beyond the veneer of it, it's got hugely practical insights and advice about how to just manage your competing time, you know, as a founder, as someone, you know, trying to have a family life, you know, trying to do your fitness, your leisure, your pursuits. And, you know, it's not about efficiency, it's about effectiveness. And it's just some really interesting and, you know, uh, practical techniques that I still go back to time and time again, you know, and uh, actually another interesting part of it is as a founder, one of the challenges is how do you just delegate? How do you let go? How do you be comfortable with the imperfect and letting others take on things, which is, a, a you know, something that a lot of us as founders and others find difficult to do. There's just stacks full of like practical tips. And I, I probably read it about seven years ago and I still go back to it now. So that was my my one read for today. 
Fantastic. It's not a book I've come across. So, so thank you. When, when, sort of the build up, I wasn't sure what it was going to be, or it was going to be a sort of kid storybook <laughs> or <laughs> for the next interview. <laughs> and and so I've given you that I've given you time to think there because I'm sure yeah. I stole some of yours. What's your since our last chat? What's the book that's you know, really struck you, or you found yourself giving to the team or, or friends? Yeah, t- yeah, tough one. I'd, I'd love to say I've. I've been as well read in the last few years as, as before, but I think a lot of I don't know nonfiction has gone out the window in the pandemic for me. I've been, just been purely about fiction and escapism. But um, I mean, a, a couple. I think last show I mentioned Simon Simon Sinek has been a big influencer on us. You know, start with why was a big a book that we used as a seminal text at the beginning of our journey. It's been really his, his one of his latest books, The Infinite Game. You know, is a superb read. The infinite game is a notion that we latched onto early in our journey. So it was it was very satisfying to see Simon Sinek latch onto that concept and, and put a, a really great read around that. So that does encapsulate a lot of what we're trying to do in terms of creating open-ended possibilities. You know, we're we're here to serve to make you know our profession better. And if you know if others if others raise their game because of us, you know everybody wins. You know, they're very much a you know a kind of core part of our philosophy. That's definitely um you know very a very seminal read. And, and I'll probably throw the This Is Marketing book back at you, Nick. I think you gifted it to me. You know, thank you. Um, you, you may or may not have, have, have come to the same realization yourself, but I think as a that is the book that for me most encapsulates this whole proposition that, that we're now into, this overlap of marketing and consultancy and in the pursuit of, of finding excellence for, for customers and, and, you know, serving their unmet needs you know, a brilliant read, but it actually, it actually does point the way to exactly, exactly what, what we're trying to encapsulate in, in this new model that we've, that we've entered into. So very prescient, uh, Nick, when you, when you got that for me and it, and it's a, that is a superb book from a, you know, very good, very good writer. Fantastic. Some great recommendations. I'm glad it's had such an impact and, you know, I'm, I'm sure one, the team will all be reading now and you're, you're right. So, I mean, it's, as a book, it boils down what can sometimes feel quite complex into a really simple, you know, positioning and actually solving you know, ultimately any business, solving your clients' needs, finding those new solutions, and you know, if that is through consulting, if it's through marketing, if it's through a combination of both, you know, that's what business is about. Be it professional services, be it you know, as he talks about in the book, sort of drill bits. You know, it's finding that need understanding what your customer wants and giving it to them. So I, I think some great recommendations both. And then the, the very last question, and again, this is one I've changed slightly because this is a round two, so I'm only going to ask you for one piece of advice. As, as Sino's last time I was, I was cheeky and asked for three, is you know, for anyone listening to this who who is in that position you were in in 2019, you know, they're growing a consulting firm, they, they see that window coming, what one piece of advice would you give to help them make that sale a success for for them, for their team, for their for their business as a whole. I mean, from my point of view, Nick, you know, it, it is probably the single biggest decision you'll make as a founder when and who to you know join. So, educate yourself and surround yourself with the right team is is my main sort of piece of advice. Particularly if it's an alien world to you, which it was to us, you know, having that team and going out and talking to as many people as possible about the process and what you need to do well before the journey starts um, is critical. And then there is a second one for me, which is, you know, you need to be really clear on your red lines and why you're going into it and ultimately be prepared to walk away if it isn't the right one, because at some point you're going to be standing up in front of your entire team and you need to be 100% confident it's the right thing for you and, and for them. 
Yeah, I just echo that. The, the the why question is the most important. And I think if you're if you're a founder running a what's likely to be a successful consultancy, if you're contemplating seeking a you know sale point, chances are you're you're doing what you love, and you know you're building a business in the in the thing you're best at. So there has to be a really compelling reason beyond you know beyond financial as to why you would seek to you know alter that path in in the future. So for us, it's got to be something that helps you to, to really deliver against your your burning mission you know, better or faster or you know in some way serve your serve your customers in a in a profoundly different way but if you can stand behind the why you know then then the when question is really key as we talked about and the you know surrounding yourself with the best team that's really sage advice and happy to to give three nick seeing as you didn't ask <laughs> um the, the i mean the other one is just if you, if you are in a situation like us you know you've got got the interests of you know five five human beings to balance going through a complex process like that it's just to be as honest as possible with each other you know really avoid those surprise or unpalatable com- compromises you know later down the line because it's it's such an emotional roller coaster of a journey you, you've got to be there to support each other through it and and you've got to have trust in the people running the process on your behalf but you've also got to have have trust in each other and that only comes from you know the candor of knowing where, where people are coming from on a on an individual level. Thank you for the extras. Some really, really <laughs> good points there. So, and I think both, you know, some really good advice and just sort of rounds off everything you've shared today. So thank you very much. It was brilliant, firstly, to catch up and hear how the business has grown and where you're taking it and, and actually the benefits of that marketing tie-up with Havas, but equally going into the weeds on the, you know, the sale and really getting sort of under the skin of that, because I know that'll help a lot of a lot of my listeners. I guess the last question then is for anyone who has listened to this, they want to find out more about yourselves, they want to find out more about Gate One. Where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? I mean, from my perspective, LinkedIn, I'm just there. Or, you know, if they want to email me direct, very happy to do so. David.holiday at gate1.co.uk. You know, if anybody's out there and wanting some advice in this space, very happy to catch up. Yeah, likewise, all all contact. You know, welcome. You're happy to share our perspectives for what they're worth. Um, so you can also reach me on, on email, simon.dennis at gate1.co.uk. And I'm sure you'll put our contacts in the uh, in the show notes, Nick. So um, very happy to share further. Definitely. Well, like you say, so I'll put those in the show notes so anyone can get them. And otherwise, chaps, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. It's been great to catch up. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk. And I really look forward to hearing from you.